because I do know that, you know, it gets a little anxious. You know, we want to get home before the roads get bad. But I'm not going to go through quite all the huge long recap that we've been doing each week, but I'm going to catch you up to speed because we are wrapping up these action and vision points for our church. Uh, a few weeks ago, we stopped our Ruth series. We're actually going to be picking that up again next Sunday. We'll be going into uh, chapter three of the book of Ruth. So we'll be looking at, at that series again, that series we entitled Redeemed. But we paused and we, we really sort of took this five weeks to explore um, what it would really mean for us to open our hearts to 2014 and thinking about what it would look like for this community to be one that was a culture of generous-based biblical living. It said, God, we want to give you our hearts, our lives, and our resources. We titled that series, Now is the Time, and really I've sort of used these three principles to base our movement on. And the first one was that now is the time to, um, what is it? Now I all of a sudden can't remember. I got it right here. Now is the time to grab hold of your financial life, to redefine uh, your, and biblically redefine your priorities, and to change the way that you think and live. The idea being, down the road, we always think, man, when I finally get my life together, then I can make some big changes, whether it's in the way I think about money, or whether it's in the way I think about relationships, or the way I think about growing up and maturing, everything's sort of one step away. Uh, but you wake up one day, and you're 30, or you're 40, or 50, or 60, or whatever, and you're still going, man, I wish I would have would have really seized that moment. Now is the time. I believe that when God calls us to something, it is in that moment. And really, now is the time to step into these things, to grab hold of our financial life and say, you know, it's not about what happens later, but it's about what I do right now. I'm building principles for maturity going forward. It's about changing biblically the way that I think and live. I want to redefine my priorities. I don't want to give more time to my kids after I kind of get three years down the road with this job, but I want to give my life to my kids now or to my wife or to my husband. I want to biblically redefine the way that I live. And now is the time to change. I think most of us get hung in this place where we say, you know, if I can just get a few things in order, then I'll make some changes in my life, ready? Maybe then I'll start getting in shape or then I'll start sort of actively pursuing these things or I'll start diving into the word or I'll start changing my behavior. I deeply believe that now is the time for us to change the way that we think and live. And it begins with a mindset. And so we sort of entitled this series, Now is the Time. And I told you that each week I was going to be sharing a a uh, action point, and a vision point, and a teaching point. Now, a vision point being that place where we look at 2014 and we say, man, what is God leading us to? Where is he directing our, our church as energy in the future? And I think it's important that we look at vision so that we know where we're going. As a young church plan, it's important that we have a vision for kind of what we can do. And my goal really for this church is not to do all things mediocre, right? But to just do a few things really well. And so in 2014, we're going to focus on a few things. Then I thought, told you I'd share an action point, which is, what does my church need from me? Trevor, what are you asking from us? And we've shared a few of those things, and then we spent some time teaching through those. So to catch you up to speed, if you haven't seen this in the back of the room, I put all these things on paper um, so that you can see these action and vision points, so you can see where we're going as a church. I encourage you to take them with you. But just by way of, of really super fast, brief recap, I told you that our vision points for 2014, the first one is centralizing and decentralizing uh, community. One of the things we're going to be focusing on is how we change this worship space. Uh, it, does, it looks like it can hold us all now, but it's snowing and, and not. And so, you know, we're going to be looking to move beyond here. Uh, God is growing us, and it's time for us to begin to redefine and rethink that. Our lease here is coming due, and so we've got a team of people together that's going to be looking at how we do worship and where we do worship. We're also going to be talking about decentralizing the community. How do we develop a better culture of life groups, people that are living in tight-knit community together saying, I want to know you and I want you to know me. We spent a, talking about that about four weeks ago. Um, so our first of those vision points is really saying we want to centralize and decentralize 
um, community. The second vision point that's on there is that we want to empower and release leaders. So we're going to be in the process of raising up teams of ministry so that people can get involved and really own what it looks like to be the church. Uh, we don't have a large staff. We've got a really small one. And uh, the ministry is in the hands of people. So we want to empower leaders to lead teams of people, our hospitality teams, our mission teams, our, our care teams. All those kind of things are going to be led by people. We'll be raising up leaders to do that well. We're also appointing and empowering elders at this current time as our church plant grows. In 2014, you'll see us empower our first group of elders to lead in sort of a biblical model of plurality, which we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks as we lead into December, what that looks like. And so you'll be here more about that, but raising up and empowering um, leaders. That's our section, second vision point. The third one, which we talked about last week, was really loving our neighbors. So one of the reasons we moved into the space out of Will Rogers was to really put a foothold into this neighborhood, to be able to say, I mean, we want to love the people well. And then our mission, right, to love, to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one, the city, and the world, that's our, our mission, begins here on 49th Street. So how do we love our neighbors well? Do they know we exist? Have they met us? Have we gone out and met them? We're going to be launching from this place very intentionally in 2014 to try and meet everyone on our street and invite them into our world. My goal is that if someone doesn't come to church here, it shouldn't be because they don't know we're here, right? They should know we're here, and if they feel comfortable and we invite them and they want to be part of this, or we reach out to them and we do events for the community, then, then maybe they'll you know, feel like this could be a place where they can put their life. So we're really going to be trying to love our neighbors well in this community and put our foot out into it. The next and final vision point for this year it, or for 2014 is trying to reach young people. Um, my real goal is that we would be a true multi-generational church. And you may not know this if you don't look around too often or if you haven't been coming very, very long, but we have a pretty significant gap of people from about the fifth grade to about right about the time you graduate college. We've got some young kids, and Stephanie's doing great things with them, and then we have some young, young students or young marrieds, and then we've got you know, those parents with kids, and then we have a pretty good demographic of those with some grown kids, and, but we don't have any young people. My daughter, who's a sixth grader, is about, uh, minus a couple of others, about our whole conglomeration of students right there. And we're not acting and living as a multi-generational church, and it's not our fault. It's just sort of the way that we've expanded and grown. And so in 2014, we're going to be developing a plan to reach students, um, to reach young people with the gospel. We're going to be developing a, a plan to um, kind of connect with and take the gospel into some of our local schools and to our young people. And so we really want to be a place where 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, all the way through high school and college kids feel like, man, this is, this is my home, and they feel welcomed here. And so we're going to be really be focusing on that. It's one of the areas that we uh, have kind of a zero um, gathering age group. And so we're going to be really trying to focus on that. The gospel readiness of young people is incredible. There's all kinds of studies I could share with you that, that show that when a student is introduced to the gospel uh, at a young age, whether they're in middle school or high school, in that kind of window, the, the chances of them growing up and, and surrendering their life to Christ and living in the church is exponentially higher than trying to reach, you know, just those that are in their 40s or 50s. Mainly because, you know, when we're developing and maturing, coming into these ideas, even if we don't completely embrace them, have it, laying that foundation is incredibly important. My background, my history as a pastor and as a leader has a background in history in youth ministry, 15 years. And so I have this huge heart for young people. And we're going to be really kind of tapping into this community to say, who loves young people and wants to get involved, even on a small scale. So that's one of the places we're going. So we're trying to get there to be a place where every generation and every age group feels like, man, this, this is my church, and I feel really comfortable here. And so that's kind of our vision points. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more as we go, but that's the directions that we're headed in 2014. doesn't mean we're going to give up on everything else we've done, and there's not going to be new things added. It just means these are going to be some focus points 
for us. So what does your church need from you? What have I asked of you? What do, what, how do I get plugged in or what do you need of my heart? And so the first thing I told you last week or the first week we started was I need you to pray. Very few of us really pray for our church and our leaders unless it's in crisis. You know, this church is, is a result only of God's move. So we need to be in constant prayer, constant battle. The more that we kind of step into the world, the more resistance we're going to face from the enemy. And so we need to be in constant prayer. So we need you to pray. We also need you to commit. You know, part of this culture that we've created in this Christian subculture is a culture of attenders, right? People that just sort of can go to church and not really get engaged in community and, and you know, which church entertains me or I can even go to church online. I think I told you the story a, few, uh, a little while ago of a buddy that lives in New York and, you know, I asked him if he found a church and he said absolutely and we were talking all of that and through a long conversation realized we started talking that he had ever, never actually been to this church. He just would watch church on TV, on, not on TV, but online, and uh, involved in a discussion group. And, and he and I started talking, and I said, is that really the church, the gathering? Or are we just kind of being taught well? And there's all kinds of opportunity to be taught really well. But part of living in community is being exposed to people. And we need you to commit. You'll go from being an attender to saying, man, this is my home. This is where I want to put my life, where I want to put my heart. We also need you, third one of those things, is we need you to give. Right? We're going to be talking a little bit about that uh, this morning, is that we need you to say, I want my heart and my life and my resources to be invested in the community in which I'm a part. Look, this thing only works because we give our lives to it. Right? If, if everything, expect, the expectation is for me, right, as pastor, to do all these things, it's just not going to happen. So part of it is, look, if we're going to engage in this, it's because you want to give your life. If we're going to love children, it's not because Stephanie is going to go down there and do it all. It's because committed volunteers are going to say, I want to love kids with you. And we're going to give our lives to that. If we're going to reach out to our community, it's not because Don and I are going to get out here and walk these streets and invite people to come. We're certainly going to do that, but it's because you and I together are going to get out there and walk the streets. Also, if we're going to kind of keep the heat and lights on, if we're going to do mission, if we're going to engage in this place and go out from here and launch and take the gospel to the one in the city and the world, it's going to be because people have given their resources to empower that to happen. We need you to give, right? This morning, we're going to have an opportunity at the end of our worship, if you're a member of our community or part of our community, to give a pledge card. And the pledge cards are right there in your, in your chair, and, and we'll do this probably next Sunday as well. But, but this Sunday, we're going to encourage you to do it as part of your worship experience. And, and these little pledge cards are really important to us because this is how we plan for the whole year, right? We look at these things and we say, God, this is what you're empowering us to do. So if you're coming on a regular basis and you're giving, that's great, but we really need you to fill one of these out because this is how our leaders set budget. It's how we dream about mission. It's how we think about what we can do. So the challenge of this is saying, oh, no, I'm going to give. It's all good. That's great, and we want that, but really we want to know about it so that we can begin to, in December, can dream and plan and lay out a budget. And that's important for us. And not that our budgets don't change, but it's how we cast vision, and it's how we go, man, we can engage in this, or we're going to give this much money away, and, and this is the ways in which we're going to do it. And those pledge cards enable us to do that. And part of our worship this morning is going to be engaging in that movement that says, God, you not only get my, my song, you not only get my, my words, but you get my life and my resources because they belong to you. So we're going to engage in this morning. And if you're here for the first time, those pledge cards aren't for you. So don't feel guilty or anything. This is really for the, the gathering of our, our community and those that have been coming on a regular basis to begin to think about putting your life. So if you are engaged in this community, we encourage you to think about filling out a pledge card. Um, we're going to be putting all of our financial information to the city this upcoming 2014 so you'll be able to give and track and do all that stuff on the city, which will be really cool. The final uh, uh, action point for this kind of 2014 window is, is under the word invite. So we want you to invite your world to church. 
not just to our physical church building, but into church, into your community, into your life, into where you gather with people, into the women's Bible study, into the men's Bible study, into your life group. We want you to invite your world. Statistics show that someone has to be invited seven times, right, seven times before they actually decide to go or show up at a church. Now, I don't know how they count that or what that looks like, but that's what they say. Seven times someone has to be. That means your coworker that you've been wanting to go to church with you or get involved in your life group or come to this thing, they need to be engaged seven times on average before they'll say, you know what, I'm going to risk it. So your one time of going, hey, hey, you should come to church with me sometime in passing, it needs to be followed up by, look, I would love for you to be a part of this or come over to our house group for dinner or come over here, we're doing this or our church is having a community event, we'd love for you and your family to come. And maybe on the seventh time they say, my goodness, Trevor won't stop asking, we're just going to go for it. And they show up, and all of a sudden, people are nice to them, and they're shaking their hands, and they walk out and go, man, that's, that's really an incredible group of folks. You don't understand the emails that I get back that say, Trevor, the reason I keep coming to the vine, or the reason I came in the first place was because I was invited. But the reason I keep coming back is because when I went, everybody talked to me. People were glad. Usually, it's Tim Lewis. Tim Lewis talked to me. Man, he was all, he was all up in my business. Next thing I know, I mean, you know, it was just like that. Because I promise you that once you get your people here, this community, one of the things you can't do is hide. People will embrace them, right? So we want you to invite your world. Our marketing department is really lame. I mean, really lame. And we actually need you to be that, right? We, have low, we don't spend a lot of money on communication. We'd rather give money away and involve in missions. So our communication advertising budget is really whatever I can do on the old laptop. So we need you to engage in that, right? So we want you to invite your world. So action, vision. Right, for 2014. So what's our final teaching point? Well, our final teaching point is really on this idea of giving generously. So the first week we really explored this kind of overarching kind of goal and concept, which is my life and my stuff belongs to the Lord. That we can't engage in giving our heart, our lives, or our resources until we really come to grips with that principle. That my life is God's. That my children belong to the Lord. That my stuff belongs to God. Everything that I claim I have is actually His. It's what it means to surrender your life to the Lord. When I surrender my life to Christ, he gets it all, right? He doesn't just get part of it or the part I don't like, and I get to keep the part I do like. That even means the inner workings of our heart and our soul, those deep recesses of our heart that we're afraid and ashamed of. God gets all of it, right? My heart, my life, my things, they all belong to Jesus. We just become stewards of that. So that was the first week. We become stewards of the things that God has, has basically blessed us and given us with, even those things that are challenging, right? Then Stephen, a couple of weeks or a week later, began to talk about what it meant to really trust in Jesus. So if I believe that my life and my stuff belong to the Lord, how do I actually trust him with that? Then we put it into a practical kind of inner workings where I gave you five principles and talked about earning ethically and avoiding greed or resisting greed and spending modestly, right? Cultivating a life of commitment, avoiding debt. And then this week is the sort of giving generously piece. And I explored the uh, cultivating commitment or uh, contentment, excuse me, last week of saying, you know, look, God wants you to be content with your life. He doesn't want you to be in a constant state of longing for more. And that's not natural. Our natural inclination is to constantly want more, right? So we've got to fight that. We've got to learn that. And the secret to living content came out of Philippians chapter 4 where it says, I want to know Christ, right? I want to know him and I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So this week we're talking about giving generous. All that to get to this place to say, man, what does it look like for me to truly engage in a generous lifestyle? A lifestyle that gives beyond my own ability and says, God, everything I have is yours. You got your Bible, I want you to flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
we are, are going to be exploring one of my favorite texts, and I, I, I kind of went through this a couple of years ago, or at least this piece of text, I'm looking at it a little differently today, but I love it when I get to talk about it, because it's not one of the pieces of text that sort of jumps out as one of the things that we always preach through, right? It's not a parable, it's not, it's, it's really sort of a, it's not a throwaway passage, but it's a gloss over passage. It's five verses in the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that I think are really revolutionary when it comes to the way that we think about giving and giving our lives. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and uh, let's pray, and then we'll open it up uh, together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning. We thank you that uh, um, you've gathered us to your presence, and that, Lord, you brought us here from all walks of life with all different things, and Lord, giving for each of us means different things. Lord, for some of us, it means letting go. Lord, for some of us, it means opening our heart. God, for some of us, it means forgiving. God, for some of us, it means actually surrendering to the idea that you are in control of our lives. But whatever that means, God, I pray that you would kind of move in that area of our heart this morning, that you would not let that go, that you would keep pressing and reiterating to our soul, Father, that you want all of us, all of us, all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our resources, all of our life, they all belong to you. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning, to whisper to your soul, to speak to you. Pray for someone beside you, um, even if you don't know them, say each week, be in the habit of praying for other people. pray that you would be glorified and exalted in everything that we do, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we read that, let me give you a quick little background. Some of you may remember this from our study of Philippians, but the Corinthian letters were written by Paul to the churches in Corinth, right, Uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and he is writing to the Corinthian church in this section, chapter 8, to encourage them to give to the churches in Jerusalem. At the time, Jerusalem, the whole area, was facing a massive famine. In fact, it was sweeping across the entire Roman Empire. And people were actually starving. And the churches in Jerusalem were struggling. They were struggling. The churches in Corinth, on the other hand, were living in somewhat of a, a relative time of abundance. And you've got to remember that part of the world, if I had a map, I'd show you. But it's pretty spread out. And, and commerce was tough. It wasn't like you could just truck food somewhere or fly it over. I mean, it was hard to get things places. And so when area went through drought, which usually induced a famine, right, then the whole area suffered. And so Jerusalem was going through this famine, this sort of starvation period, and it was affecting the entire Roman Empire. But all the way up towards Corinth, they were living in relative abundance. And so as Paul's writing this letter, he's saying, listen, I want you and I need you to give to the church in Jerusalem. And he says, he uses an example. And he uses the example of the Macedonian churches, which we're getting ready to read about. Now, the churches in Macedonia included a couple of really famous churches, the church in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, and the church in Philippi, the Philippians. And it was just north of the Greek peninsula, and they were the first Christian converts on Paul's second missionary journey. And, and we learned a little bit about this when we studied the book of Philippians. But what's ironic about the Macedonian churches, and Paul using them as an example of churches that give, is that they were facing extreme poverty as well. A civil war had ravaged the land, 
and a lot of the food supply had been cut off. And scholars also believe that and right before Paul wrote this letter, a natural disaster had happened, whether it was a flood or an earthquake or something, because we have some other writings that sort of imply that it was an incredibly difficult time. And the churches in Macedonia were facing extreme poverty, right? We learned that when we were studying Philippians. We also learned that the churches in Macedonia were facing severe persecution. So not only the churches in Macedonia, the Thessalonican church and the Philippian church, right, they are, are facing extreme poverty. They're facing a land that has been ravaged by civil war. They're facing their own struggles and trials, and they're facing extreme persecution. These are not everyday kind of problems. But Paul's going to use them as an example of, of what generous living looks like. So let's take a look at, at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll just look at the first five verses. And now, brothers... We want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their own ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. So here's a Jerusalem church, right? The church in Jerusalem, really struggling. I mean, struggling with starvation and food deprivation. And Paul's writing to the, to the abundant churches in Corinth saying, please, we need you to give. And you, I'm going to give you an example of the churches that are giving. And he lifts up these Macedonian churches. And he's not talking about one single church, but the collected community which is actually remarkable. Now, you remember, the church back in those days wasn't some giant, big, kind of mega church gathered. They were huddled in small, underground communities because they were being persecuted. So the church in Philippi, or the church in Thessalonica, was probably actually a scattering of 30 or so groups of believers that made up, were made up of, of kind of cells of like 7, 8, 9, even all up to 15. And so when he talks about the church in Philippi, he's talking about all of those cell groups, right? all the believers. When he's talking about the church in Thessalonica, he's talking about all those cell groups and all the believers. And then he says the Macedonian church is meaning the gathered community, right? And he uses them as an example. There's a couple of things I want you to see here that I want to show you that kind of are characteristics of a community that really lives in a generous way. The first thing that we see in that Macedonian church is that the churches is they were overwhelmingly generous. Now, this may not sound like much. Of course they were generous. Paul's not going to use them as an example if they're not generous. But, but look at where their generosity came from. Their generosity comes from, right, verse 2, out of their most severe trial, overwhelming joy, and their extreme poverty. So the Macedonian churches, their generosity didn't come in spite of those things, but it came because of those things. Now, I've been telling you this for a few weeks, but in our culture, we give out of our abundance. We've been taught that way since we were little. Kindergarten says, when I have extra, I give it away, right? So I give out of my abundance. If I have two and I only need one, then you can have my extra. But very seldom do we give in a manner of sacrifice. This principle kind of carries its way through our whole life. But the Macedonian churches, they weren't living this way. They weren't living and saying, hey, look, we've got an abundance. We've been blessed by the Lord, so have our extra. They're basically saying we are giving out of our extreme poverty in extreme trial. It was because of the place that we are that actually caused us to want to give more. They were so overwhelmingly generous that it flowed not out of their abundance, right? But it flowed out of their trial and out of their sacrifice. I find this really remarkable because, man, we are a culture that says, man, when the Lord blesses me, then I will bless you, 
right? Because blessing is always tied to some kind of physical abundance. But the Macedonian churches were living in extreme trial and poverty, yet they gave all that they could, and as we're going to see, even more. They were overwhelmingly generous. The second characteristic we see is the one that says that they gave beyond their ability. I love this picture. Paul says, listen, for I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They don't have much. So they gave everything they could, and then they gave beyond what they were capable of doing. In other words, their giving defied logic. Now, we very rarely, and I, I use myself as an example, give beyond what's logical. We really live in the logical area of giving, which says this. In my budgeted world, right, when I take my paycheck or I take my income or you take yours and we look at it, we logically put everything in its categories. And most of us, right, if we're not really super spiritual, we look at all that and then whatever's left over, that's what we give to charity, whether it's a church or the places. Now, those of us that are really spiritual, we take that portion on the front end, maybe it's 10% or whatever, it's a tithe. And we say, that's God's, and then we logically divide up the rest of our money. We have a very logical way that we approach it, right? The truth is, is that giving really defies logic. It doesn't fit into categories. When God calls us to engage in the lives of people, it, doesn't def- be, it can't be defined by categories and numbers. It can't be saying, well, God only wants 10% of my money. Sometimes God calling defies all logic, and God says, I want all of you and all of your heart, or all of your resources, or I want you to give in a different way this time around. I want you to give your whole life. I don't just want you to write a check to the church. I actually want you to show up, and I want you to love someone. Giving God's way defies all logical thinking. You know the numbers are that the average Christian, follower of Christ, evangelical Christians, studied them by Barna, evangelical Christian gives 2.3% of their income back to the church, right? So, Very logically, we categorize our giving. But what the Macedonian churches are doing is something that defies logic completely. They're giving all they could and then even beyond their ability. I think I mentioned this before, but I remember the first time uh, when I was in Africa and I was preaching at this church and they drove me out into the bush. I mean, literally this guy in this van and I hopped in this thing and it was me and him and people were just sort of jumping on the van as we go. We drove us all the way out into the bush to this remote, remote, remote church dirt floor, had a few cinder block walls, three cinder block walls to be uh, particular, but it was, a, it was a dirt floor, and people gathered, and it was an all-day experience, and, and I was supposed to be the preacher, right, when our team was divided up and sort of cast all over the place, and I was preaching at this church, and I remember sitting kind of up front, and the church was packed with mainly women, but there were also some men there, most of the men were out uh, working, um, but it was packed with women and children, and uh, the time came to do the offering. And the pastor uh, in, in Lugandan, or I guess it was a test of the language they were speaking, uh, kind of did the offering, and we watched the plate being passed, right? And I remember people were putting in coins and those kind of things. And it came across this really old lady, old widow. And I knew she was a widow because the, the translator told me that she comes all the time and she has a little hut over here. And I, I watched her reach down into her little bag, and she pulled these two ears of corn, and she put them right in the offering plate, and the offering plate went around it. People were putting in different things and coins and stuff. And, and my translator leaned over, and he said, he said, she's, she's, as an old widow, she goes, she doesn't farm her own. That's, that's food that's given to her. And she basically gave what she had to eat today and put it in the offering plate of the church. Now, our offering with church culture is all money, right? It's all dollars. It's all checks. And do you take online gifts so I can get the points for my credit card and all those kind of things? But really, the idea of giving scripturally is one that comes out of sacrifice. Sacrifice. So here's this, this widow putting in ears of corn into the offering plate, which I'm sure the pastor was like, well, we're going to eat this two ears of corn. But it was the sacrificial nature, right? It's almost like that widow's might picture in scripture. 
She gave beyond her ability and just even more, saying, God, this was given to me and it really belongs to you. So we've got this picture of this overwhelming, generous kind of nature of these churches, giving beyond their ability. Look at verse uh, 3 and 4. He says this, he says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the saints. They gave on their own, and they pleaded for the privilege. Now, I really love this, because when we give, most of the time it's because I feel compelled. Like, I feel guilty. I mean, pastors up here, and you always do talk about money and how, you know, we can't, kids aren't going to have any toys to play with the church if we don't give, or we can't do this. And so I feel really bad, or I go to work, and my, my coworker kind of puts a pressure about our kids' walk-a-thon, and I don't want to be the only person to put a name down there. And what's the least amount I can put on that sheet and still feel like I did something and not be the tool that didn't give, you know? I mean, that's how we engage in those things, because we feel guilty. Right? But that's not really what we see being explored here with these Macedonian churches. What we see is something completely different, is that they gave completely on their own. Right? They wanted to. They saw this as an opportunity. They said, we want to help. Are the churches in Jerusalem, are they struggling? Let us help. We're going to give. Paul didn't even have to ask. We don't see a letter where Paul's writing to them. He's writing to the affluent church in Corinth saying, please give. And the poor, poverty-stricken, persecuted church in Macedonia is given everything they have. Great irony of our church culture today, right? Our most affluent churches oftentimes, and I'm not pointing a finger at anything in particular, but oftentimes are the ones that have the largest endowments, give the least amount of money away, right? And spend more money on the maintenance of themselves. They're the ones that we plead with. Churches are struggling. Man, they're giving every, other churches are giving everything away. The church in Africa gives everything it has away. There's no bank account. Basically what they do is what they pass the plate. They pay the things that have to get paid out of it. Anything else out of there, they just give it away. They don't take it to the bank. The second part that I love about that says they gave on their own and they considered it a privilege, right? They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege to share. You know what this says to me? It says that somebody, Paul or somebody else, probably tried to talk him out of it. Hey, listen, this is a terrible idea for you guys. You can't even feed your own families, right? You're struggling. You're persecuted. Keep your money. Rally around it. Do whatever you've got to do. But they urgently pleaded, do not take this joy from When's the last time you urgently pleaded with your church or with your community to give? Please let me give. Don't turn my money down. It doesn't happen that way. But I love that because they see this as this opportunity. Don't rob our joy. Right? I had a, a woman, the first church I ever worked at, a, an incredible woman um, that came down, and, and we were doing an outreach, and I'll just keep all the details. It doesn't really matter. We were doing this outreach, and she gave a really large sum of money. And I, I knew her really well, and, her, and I knew that she didn't have a ton of money, but she gave this large sum of money so that we could go out and do this outreach in our community when we were living in Texas. And, and I still looked at her, and I said, I can't take this money from you. I, I can't take it. And she goes, don't rob me of this opportunity. And I thought, man, yes, ma'am. But then I thought to myself, who, a, who am I to try and talk you out of the opportunity that God is compelling you? So they gave on their own and they considered it the privilege. But here's the, the big piece that I want you to see. Even beyond that generous life and giving beyond your own ability and considering a privilege, which very few of us really engage in that way of thinking anyway, here's what I really want you to see. Because what they did, it, it actually surprised Paul. Look at verse 5. And they did not do as we expected. So Paul's going, look, we are completely surprised. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And then they gave themselves to us in keeping with God's will. You know what made the Macedonian churches different? Is they gave themselves first to Jesus. The first thing they realized with their lives and their stuff didn't belong to them. They did what we didn't expect. 
They didn't just send a check or send money or send a bag of dollars and say, we want to help the starving churches in Jerusalem. They gave their lives first to Jesus. And then, after they had surrendered their hearts and lives to Christ, these things flew, they, they, they were flowing from that. They're a response to that. They gave their lives first to Jesus. Most of the reason that giving hurts us so much, right, pains me, difficult, the challenge, the struggle, is because I've yet to give myself fully to Christ. When I give myself fully to Jesus, Jesus, my life, everything about who I am is yours, then giving is a privilege because it's not mine. And I get the opportunity to participate in your life. We'll give our lives first to Christ. One of the great signs that you've yet to really surrender your life to Jesus, right, is that giving your life and your resources, not just your dollars, your heart, your life, your time, your resources to people is a burden. We surrender our lives first to Christ. It becomes a privilege and a joy. They gave themselves first to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to us. It's the, great, it's the greatest commandment. Remember when Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Paul's saying. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. They were living the call that God had for their lives. And guess what? Money didn't rain down from the sky, right? It wasn't a crazy blessing that they experienced once they gave it all away. They gave 1,000 away, and God replaced it with 10,000. Not a prosperity gospel. They're still living in poverty and trial, but they gave everything they had, and they considered it a joy. What's the practical application of this? In all honesty. So, Trevor, I hear you say that. We want to live and give generously our time, our lives, our resources. Is this a burden? You know, not just giving to the church, but giving to people, right? Do you give your kids those things? Do you give your wife that? Do you give your, your life? Do you give those things away? Is it a burden or is it a joy? What's the practical way of doing this? Well, I sort of developed a, a really easy way of thinking about it, right? And there's three quick little things, and then we'll, we'll be done for this morning. But three quick things. And you may want to jot these down because these are, gonna, these are mind-blowingly amazing, right? The first one is... God gets the first. So think about that. In your life, God gets the first. He gets the first of your dollars. He gets the first of your life, the first of your resources, first of your time, right? Oftentimes in our life, God gets what's left over, right? So left over of my money after I pay my rent or my, my mortgage or after I pay all my bills and I do all these things and our kids are engaged in these and that. And God gets whatever's left. And I take whatever that chunk is and I can give it to the Lord somewhat begrudgingly because I didn't get to save any of it, right? But I'll give. God, that's how we sort of think. Same thing with my time, right? I'm too busy today. I'm too busy, so I didn't spend any time with the Lord. I didn't pray. I never even had time. I haven't done Bible study or quiet time in in years because my life is so busy. Because God doesn't get the first. The principle that will revolutionize your life is when God gets the first of everything. The first of your time. Whatever that means for you. Or that you wake up in the morning and He gets that first window. Right? God gets the first. He gets the first of your resources. God, this is yours. You blessed me with this job, this money, this stuff. It's yours. God, you get the first of everything that I have, right? Even before my life, and hear me, even before my family, you get the first, right? All through scripture, this principle is traced. Have no other gods before me. All through principle, you see these things. God gets the first because he's God. The second thing that will revolutionize your life is that God gets the best. So God gets the first and the best. Oftentimes I think about this with time, because I give God time, but it's not always my best time. A lot of times it's distracted time, or it's tired time, or it's kind of burden time, or it's guilty time, or it's whatever. But very seldom do I give God my best time. God, this is the most productive part of my day, the day where I'm the, I am most focused and most alert and most eager, and that time is yours, right? 
most of the time it's before I fall asleep or, or I'm doing this or I'm kind of distracted and God gets a few windows here and I'm praying, but all those other things are flying in and out of my mind and God gets my most distracted time. But God gets the best. What are the best of your time? What's the best of your resources, right? What does that mean? What does God get the best when it comes to your family's time together? God gets the first. God gets the best, right? And then my last one and my favorite one is this. In all things, ridiculous joy. Look at those churches. Listen to what they said. Out of, right, the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So not only were these, these churches giving and engaging in sacrificial living, it was an overflowing joy. It was ridiculous. It didn't make any sense from the worldly standpoint. How in the world can you be happy? You're facing extreme persecution. You're living in crazy poverty. You have no money. You are struggling. Why are you so joyful? It defies all logic. The answer is simple. They gave their lives first to Christ. Joy comes from somewhere else. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, you can remember, we talked about this idea of joy a lot, right? Joy comes from knowing Christ. From a worldly perspective, it doesn't make any sense, right? But in all things, ridiculous joy. Look, God gets the first and the best. And in all things, joyful, right? I want to be joyful in the way I engage in people's lives, the way I give to the church, the way I give to people, the way I give to my wife, my children, my resources. I want to be at a place where my life is marked by joy. Sadly, so many of our churches are not marked by joy. They're marked by struggle and fighting and theological battles and inbreakings and this and pastors doing this and people doing this and fighting over, you know, what color the carpet's going to be in the new edition. Our bowling alley is going to have red pins or white. You know, what are we doing? We fight and we struggle. They're not marked by joy. Anybody that is engaged in the church behind the scenes, you've been a part of those teams, those meetings, those infightings, those struggles, realize that very few of our churches, not all of them, and I'm not saying ours, I'm just saying very few of our, our, our Western churches are marked by ridiculous joy. Right? They're marked by frustrations. The children's pastor didn't teach what I asked her to. Right? We didn't do this, or, or he didn't do that, or I keep emailing pastor, and he doesn't do those things that I want. We're frustrated. And our churches aren't marked by ridiculous joy. What if we could find a way to live this way? God, you get the first, best, and in all things joyful. Even when things don't go my way. Even when, like the Philippians, I'm facing trial and struggle, and I should have every reason to kick dirt around and be angry. Right? What if I found joy in knowing that you are God? This is the church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a church that says, God, as a church, you don't get what's left over. You get the first and you get the best of our time and our resources and everything because it's all yours. And we're going to be marked by joy, period. Everything else, we're just sort of done with. Because listen, if we forego those three things, if we forego those three things, what are we really doing? We're just marking time. I deeply believe that God is calling us to be part of something more simple, right? and more revolutionary. God gets the first, he gets the best, and all things ridiculous joy. As we close our time in worship this morning, what we're going to ask you is, those of you that have been coming for a while or are part of our community, we're going to be singing a couple of songs. For that first song, if, if you've taken a few moments and you've filled out your pledge card, or, or uh, if you're thinking about it or praying through it, we're going to invite you during that first song to come up and just place it in one of these baskets that are down here as a part of your expression of worship. Now listen, you don't have to, right? And I don't want it to. There's no guilt here. And, and hear me say that. There is zero guilt here. If you're here for the first time or you just don't want to do it, this is, it's just worship. Just engaging God where you are. But if you, if you are part of this community, part of how you live with us 
is really important in what we do financially. And so we need to be able to say, God, what do you have for us in the future? And so as part of your expression of worship this morning, we're going to ask you to come and offer the Lord your resources and what that looks like for 2014. Those pledge cards are there. If you want to keep it and pray over it, mail it in. That's fine, too. Um, that's totally fine. No guilt, no pressure. But as an expression this morning, we're encouraging you to engage in that as part of your worship. Let's take a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll stand and close our time together.